we joke that we're a snowmaking system with a ski area attached. It's, it's an operational philosophy that if you don't have the snow, everything else just really doesn't matter. Every single thing that we're doing for the last 20 years and the next few years has been trying to implement that master plan so that we can go from nothing being open to all of our terrain being open in 48 hours. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Got one of the best general managers in New England for you today. First though, go hit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. Just this past week, I dropped stories on Sugar Bowl joining the Mountain Collective and a big new lift project from Boeing. These aren't press releases. They're full breakdowns and analyses of the most important events happening in lift served skiing and I am delivering those directly to your inbox all year long. I'm working on a whole lot more stories like that, including some acquisitions that could drop anytime and that will have major past implications. So sign up for that at stormskiing.com and you can also follow the storm on Twitter or Instagram at stormskijournal. Here's another way to get great content. Subscribe to Mountain Gazette. What is Mountain Gazette? Well, it's a skiing magazine, but it's also a climbing, backpacking, trekking, fishing, and running magazine. And it goes on, ranging widely in, over, and through the mountains, and digging deeply into mountain subjects of all kinds. A given issue can cover everything from mountain play, to mountain people, politics, culture, trends, travel, and the environment. There are also some subjects in Mountain Gazette's pages that defy categorization. There are more than a few surprises, news reviews, and many unusual side trips into the most remote corners of the world's highest places. All of them presented with humor, freshness, vitality, and originality that have both won and lost the magazine friends, but have rarely left readers feeling lukewarm about the magazine. But don't take our word for it. Go to mountaingazette.com to lock in your subscription today. Mountain Gazette, when in doubt, go higher. Here's another thing, a little new one for you. I have got a deal for you. Snowbound Expo is coming. After two years dormant, the former Boston Ski Show has been purchased by Raccoon Events and renamed Snowbound Expo. The show will offer a huge speaker lineup that includes Cody Miller, Conrad Angler, Dan Egan, Vasu Sojitra, Danny Reyes Acosta, Lindsey Fixmer, and more, including a live podcast from me. You will also find sales on the latest gear, apparel, and resort passes. And you can try a dry ski slope and kick back with friends at the Opera Ski Mountain Bar. The show is November 18th to 20th at Boston Heinz Convention Center. Tickets are normally $15 per day, but Snowbound Expo is offering Storm listeners free tickets for the entire weekend. To claim your tickets, visit snowboundexpo.com and use Storm at checkout. I will be there and I hope to meet you in person. Episode 97, Chris Blomback. General Manager of Pat's Peak, New Hampshire. 
I'll give you two facts to tell you everything you need to know about Pat's Peak. Number one, New England is home to some of the most powerful snowmaking systems on the planet. Mount Snow, Killington, Sunday River. Owned by some of the biggest names in skiing. Vail, Powdercore, Boyne Resorts. And guess who is the first ski area that hits 100% open nearly every year in New England? It's Pat's Peak. Yeah, I hear you. It's only 120 acres, but it's in southern New Hampshire. And if you don't think that's a rough zone to operate a ski area in, take a look at the graveyard surrounding the place. King Ridge, Temple, Mount Whittier, and frankly, too many more to name or inventory. Pat's Peak opens first, not because it's small, but because they know what the hell they're doing. Second, Indy Pass has 97 downhill ski partners. Last season, it had 82. We all know Jay Peak was number one in redemptions. Number two was also no surprise, Big Waterville Valley, New Hampshire. Number three, Pat's Peak. That is remarkable, especially when you consider who the mountain finished ahead of. Yes, Big Bad Powder Mountain in Utah, but also some ballers right up the street. Cannon, Bolton Valley, Saddleback. These two facts are related. Pat's Peak gets a lot of Indy Pass redemptions because it opens early, but Pat's Peak opens early because it is, and has been, extremely well run for decades. Why has Pat's Peak not just survived, but thrived to the point that the place is bursting at the seams on nights and weekends? Because it has one of the best general managers in the business, Chris Blombach. And you are going to understand why he's so good in about three minutes. Let's go. My guest today has been the general manager of Pat's Peak, New Hampshire since 1995. Pat's Peak has 11 lifts serving 115 acres of terrain on 770 vertical feet. The ski area hosts one of the largest night skiing operations in New England. Pat's Peak was an inaugural Indy Pass partner in 2019 and was the pass's third most popular mountain during the 2021 to 22 ski season. Pat's Peak was also the first ski area to open 100% of its terrain last ski season in New England. Prior to joining the team at Pat's Peak in 1991, he spent five years at Vermont's Magic Mountain. Chris Blombach is my guest. Chris, welcome to the storm. So good to have you. How are you doing today? Stuart, thanks for uh, letting us come on and tell you a little bit about the Mighty Pat's Peak story. We've got a rainy day out here, which is good. It'll help fill up our snowmaking ponds and brooks and streams, and we're, we're gearing up for another great ski season. So thanks for having us. Happy to have you, Chris. And before we get into skiing, I just want to ask you real quick, how was your summer? Did you have a chance to relax a little bit? Uh, pretty good summer. Uh but as always, it goes a little bit too quick. Uh, my wife and I have a joke when she starts seeing some of the maple trees turning red in like August, she knows to uh, kind of keep quiet because I observe the same thing and uh, she doesn't need to remind me that the train, the ski season's coming on like a, like a train. Well, I appreciate you giving us a little bit of time as you prep for that ski season. Before we get into Pat's Peak here, Chris, I just want to ask you about the big news that hit last week, which is that Jay Peak finally, after a six-year limbo, has a new owner at Pacific Group Resorts. They already own and have for several years one of your competitors, 
ragged. I know you're tight with Steve Wright, the general manager who has guided Jay Peak through this. What was your reaction to seeing Jay Peak finally get through this weird place it's in for the last six years and move toward a period of more stability? Well, yeah, we know that Jay Peak has certainly had a turbulent history. Uh, over the last few years, and I can't think of a better captain than Steve Wright to steer those folks through those waters. Uh, I'm very happy that it landed with the Pacific Group. Um, they're a consortium that's just a little bit north of us operating Ragged Mountain, and uh, they've done a great job of uh, doing uh, operating the facility up there, and uh, I know that they'll probably keep the team intact. You know, After all, this business is, in a, is an experience business, and uh, I can't think of a better operated ski area than Jay Peak is right now. And uh, Steve and his team have done a fantastic job. So uh, I'm, I'm very happy for the staff. I'm very happy for the guests that ski Jay Peak, that there's a little bit of stability being reintroduced up there. You know, what do you hear from your skiers about Ragged? Because I'm sure that given the proximity of all the ski areas in New Hampshire, that your skiers ski around and come back. And I'm sure you hear about how you're doing compared to the others. Uh, what do you hear about Ragged in general? Oh, I hear nothing but good things. Uh, you know, they've, they've done a great job uh, refurbishing their mountain operations uh, staff. And, uh, you know, when I go out and I check lift tickets in the line, I can see all the lift tickets hanging off of people. And, uh, you know, we, we, get the, we get quite a few skiers and snowboarders here that they – they participate and they take advantage of all the other ski areas in the region. And, um, you know, I think skiers like a nice little variety and uh, they ski around and I, I've heard nothing but good things with Ragged Mountain. Uh, Jay Gamble transferred over there from uh, Mount Sunapee or, or, or maybe uh, took a different job is a better way to put that. Um, and he did a fantastic job uh, of uh, straightening that ship out. And uh, Eric Barnes is doing a is is doing a great job as well. So I imagine you've seen it all. That's why I appreciate your perspective on those mountains. As as someone who's been running a ski area in the very tricky southern New Hampshire environment for a long, long time. So 31 years you've been at Pat's Peak, and since 1995 been running the operation. That's a long time. It's enough to see a full generation of change. Just take us back here to the early 90s, Chris. What did Pat's Peak look like when you arrived, and how has that ski area changed and evolved over the years? Sure. Well, I never heard of Pat's Peak prior to me applying. Oh, no way. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was uh, raised on Long Island, in, uh, so I never really kind of made it over to the New Hampshire area, but when I pulled into the parking lot, I was looking on the map when I was getting ready for my interview, and uh, I said, wow, this place has got a lot of potential. You know, <laughs> it, uh, it had a nice location. Probably a little bit sleepy. There was a couple things that needed some fixing. It had only about a, uh, three chairlifts at the time and a few surface lifts. Um, I could tell after my tour of the facility that snowmaking was, uh, even by the 1991 standard, if you will, was a bit behind the curve. Uh, and they only had uh, two or three runs open for night skiing. And the base area facilities were probably uh, half the size they are now. And, and over time... Did you, I guess there's a few different ways we go with this. So you look at the Pat Nude family who, who uh, started Pat's Peak back in the day, and they've been pretty clear to give you credit for this evolution. So a, as you look at what Pat's Peak is today with those 11 lifts and with one of the, this huge night skiing footprint and this extremely sophisticated snowmaking system, 
was this, did you sort of have this master plan working in the back of your head the whole time and, and, and sort of did it little by little, or, or was this the family saying, this is the direction we want to go? How did that whole dynamic work? Well, I, I think it was good for me to get in on the ground floor of uh, the uh, snowmaking operation. So I came from a snowmaking background and uh, over time it expanded to lift maintenance as well. And the place really had potential, but it needed a little jolt of capital, if you will. Um, you know, Pat's Peak was started way back in the, uh, in the 60s. I think it was 1963 was the first day of skiing. And there were four Patnod brothers that uh, more or less started it. And, uh, you know, not citing specific dates, basically one brother dropped out each decade. And then it was finally consolidated under uh, Wayne Patnod and his wife, Sally. And that's kind of really where the, the uh, capital spigot got turned on to, to do this. And you, you, you alluded to, did I have a plan? I actually did. Um, when they asked me to take over as GM, I typed up a list of the hundred things that I thought were good about Pat's Peak and the hundred things that I wanted to fix about Pat's Peak. And I'm happy to say that items that were on the 85 and 90th part of that list are now being addressed to this day. So it took us a long time to get there. But, uh, you know, I, I was operating the ski area and our team had to operate it under the Patnod philosophy, which was to not borrow money, which was fine. Uh, I certainly understood that. I certainly understood why they operated that. Um, I think it's important to note that... Back in the 90s and the 80s, or the 80s and the 90s, if you will, um, you know, skiing in southern New Hampshire was not a guaranteed thing. Um, when you operate a ski area 60 miles from the Atlantic Ocean, she's got a lot to say about that. And I don't think anybody really had the robust snowmaking systems that they do now. And, uh, you know, we had we had a lot of our competitors at the time went out of business and that's when Pat's peak decided that we were going to get very aggressive with snowmaking because you can have the nicest bathrooms and the most beautiful cafeteria in the world. But if you don't have the snow, you're not making money. You know, as you look around, New Hampshire is just, it's a tough, tough market. I mean, even, even when you consider that weather bit, if you look at who you're competing against, you have these much bigger mountains. They're very well capitalized. You have Loon owned by Boyne. You have Bretton Woods. You have Cannon that obviously has that state funding. Um, you have Aditash. You have Cranmore. And they're not that much farther north than you. And they get more natural snow. As you look at this, this very difficult environment and how many scaries have gone out of business, Mount Whittier, King Ridge, Temple, all of them were in your orbit. Was it what was the the driving factor keeping Pat's Peak in business? Was it just the snowmaking? Was it the debt? Was it persistence or, or the, the allergy to debt? What was it that kept Pat's Peak going as all these other places folded? You know, it's hard to pinpoint any one thing. I think there's a, a, a soup mix, if you will, that can conspire to work against ski areas. You know, in the 70s and the 80s, it was the, the skyrocketing cost of insurance in the 80s and the 90s, it was probably uh, access to capital. You know, at one time in southern New Hampshire, we lost King Ridge, Whaleback, Ragged, Crotchet, Temple, 
Highlands and Pinnacle. Mm. <laughs> so, wow. you know, there was a, a huge, uh, I think, overcorrection, if you will. And then some of those ski areas have made it back and some of them have not made it back. But I think the, 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 the philosophy of operating Pat's Peak, especially when you did not have a robust snowmaking system, was to always be pretty conservative with your dollars. And they didn't like to get too far out, pardon the pun, in front of their ski tips in terms of money owed, because we saw it take out a couple of our competitors, uh, one to the north, one to the south, uh, because they had borrowed too much money. And I think that that's actually a little bit of an issue that persists today, that a lot of these ski areas get ratcheted up in their debt column. And, you know, I don't think that these ski areas are necessarily built to be able to handle all of that debt. Uh, you know, you get one bad ski season, um, <laughs> it can make things pretty tight, pretty darn quick. I spoke with an area operator when we had, uh, what was it? Uh, I forget the exact dates, but we had two bad ski seasons and a window of five, five ski seasons. And I remember that operator was at our place and he said, you know, we designed our facility to handle the debt load, but we only designed it to be able to handle the debt load once one bad season out of 10, not two and five. And that, you know, um, that spoke volumes to me in terms of how to operate the ski area. And there's just something about putting your head on the pillow at night, knowing that uh, you don't have this big nut to digest every month, because I can guarantee you that banker is going to come calling every single month. You know, as you survey Southern New Hampshire, you do, it, it continues, you continue to see churn and you have two competitors who are attempting comebacks this winter. You have Granite Gorge, which is not too far away from you. And then more to the north, you have Tenney. What do you think those ski areas need to do? And, and I don't expect you to be familiar with the granular, granular details, but, but what advice would you give them as they attempt to come back uh, for, not for the first time for either of them? Um, I think it's to just really watch your shekels. Um, slow and steady wins the race in this business. And I've, I've been involved on a, on a consultancy basis on a couple of areas that tried to rebound. And I, I was asked how, how it was going to go. And I recall just telling the folks that were in there, I said, take your most conservative numbers, your year one numbers. And let's say you're going to say you're going to do 20,000 visits and, and you may only lose a little bit of money. I said, if you're, if you're budgeting 20,000 visits, you should really cut that in half yet again. And the only reason why I say that is I was familiar with one area that tried to get, get open again. And it took them 45 minutes on their grand opening to sell their first ticket. Oh, wow. So the market is, uh, it's, it's a, like I said, it's a slow race to win. And uh, I think you just have to be incredibly conservative in this business. And you, you know, the, the old saying in business, if you take care of the downside, the upside will take care of itself. And how important is it, Chris, to know who you are as a ski area? I, I think we might be seeing some overzealous operators in New England as they're surrounded by these resorts that are owned by Vale and Altera and Boyne and Powdercore and now Pacific Group where they have this out-of-state capital to act as a safety net. 
And Pat's Peak has never tried to be that. You've never tried to compete with Loon, for example. I, what What is your niche and, and how important is it for you to understand that and live in that world and not try to be Bretton Woods? Well, you have to totally, uh, to your point, Stuart, you have to really be comfortable in your own skin. And, you know, we, we always joke and we introduce Pat's Peak at all the trade shows as Mighty Pat's Peak because with a little red engine that could. Uh, we know that our physical size is half the size of the competitors up the road from us. Um, so we've carved out a nice little niche, if you will, in our beginner learn to ski markets. And, you know, we, we do a lot of starter specials, which is our introductory ski and snowboard package. Uh, I can't tell you how many of those things we sell. And then we're also very involved with our school districts. We have 103 schools that wow. participate in, our, in the Pat's Peak after school program. Wow. And I've seen years here where we've had between six and 8,000 kids each week coming in on school buses uh, to participate in the, in the Learn to Ski and Ride program. And, you know, it's very important for every ski area that's out there, we can't all be Vail. Um, so everybody needs to know their place. And like I've said, Pat's Peak is very comfortable where we are. We know that, uh, for instance, it's crucial for a ski area like Granite Gorge to succeed because they're going to take the local Keen area. They're going to teach those kids how to ski. And then when they get a little bit tired of Granite Gorge, they're going to say, what's next? So they're going to come up to Pat's Peak, hopefully. And that's why we, you know, one of the first things I did when I, when I, when I heard that Granite Gorge was opening, reopening, as I reached out to Keith and I said, what can we do to help you out so that you succeed in the marketplace? Do you want a little value add to your season passes? Do you need some rental equipment? Do you need anything to keep you going? And so then when they come up to Pat's Peak, we're lucky if we get four or five years out of them, and then they're probably going to look for something bigger. And then we'll feed them to Sunapee, or we'll feed them to Killington, or Jay Peak. Uh, and then, likewise, they're going to graduate from New England out to possibly the, you know, in in the grand scheme of things, if they if they graduate to California and Utah and Colorado, then we've done our job. And we know exactly where we are on the food chain. We're very proud of where we are, uh, and we, um, you know, the. It's also a pretty profitable niche. Um, if you think about the beginner skier, they come in, they go to your rental shop, they go to your ski school lesson, they ski on the snow that requires the least amount of it. Uh, you know, they're generally in the beginner area. And they'll go up into your cafeteria and they may have a beer in your bar at the end of the day. Your expert skier will come in and I, I realize I'm painting with a broad brush here, but your expert skier is going to come in. It's going to skip the rental shop. It's going to skip the ski school area. Going to ask what kind of ticket deal you got. It's going to brown bag it in the in the in the in the lunchroom, and then you're you're just hopeful that they at least buy a beer in the pub. And then oh by the way, they also ski on the snow that requires the most amount of it to be blown. So. You know, if I had to calculate how many millions of gallons of water is on our FIS race trail or our hurricane ski trail versus our beginner area. <laughs> well, it, it may be a broad brush, Chris, but I can tell you, you have pretty much everyone listening to this podcast nailed. So <laughs> you're speaking to them. Um, you know, 
it's one thing to know who you are. It's it's another thing to get that buy-in from your owner. And I have to think that that's part of the special ingredient of Pat's Peak is is the way that you have been able to work with the Pat and family to grow and evolve Pat's Peak. Talk a little bit about the way that you work with them to help grow the ski area, to help prioritize capital needs, to help con- continue to make this thing into what it needs to be, to live in that special niche that it, that it occupies in New England. Sure. Well, the Patnod family is absolutely great. When I first got here, uh, I mostly worked with uh, Joe Patnod, who is Wayne's brother. Uh, Joe opted to tag out of the business, if you will, in the mid-90s. Um, I think he was probably a little bit concerned about the the shakeout that we talked about a little earlier with the number of uh, ski areas that had gone by the wayside, um, you know, with, with Crotchet closing, Ragged closing, Whaleback, Temple Highlands, and all of King Ridge. So I think he I think he didn't have the risk or the stomach for risk that uh, Wayne and Sally have. And they are fantastic to work for. They uh, always reinvest in the facility. Wayne and Sally are always all about making sure that we are caretakers first for this facility. And the profitability will come along after making the right decisions and sometimes Wayne <laughs> is his own worst enemy when it comes to spending money because he pays me to uh, keep track of the bank accounts and the whole nine yards. And, and uh, our capital request, you know, generally starts in April and we fine tune it. And then let's I'm, I'm making some numbers up here. But if I go to him and I say to, hey, you know, we need, we need a million dollars here to upgrade our pumps and this. And, uh, you know, we want to put a nice little addition to the lodge. Sometimes we come out of it with a million two or a million three because he always closes every meeting with it's got to be the best. You got to do the best and I want it to be the best. And it's got to it's got to just be off the charts. Good for our skiers and riders. So um, they're very hands off. They allow our team to do and execute the business plan that we've outlined. And um, it's just a, it's a great comfort to know that they are backstopping the operation because uh, I've worked at a couple of other areas prior to here that did not have that financial backstop, and that forces you to make decisions you don't always want to do just because your your economic balance sheet is so tight. Um, we often refer to the Pat's Peak balance sheet as a battleship, and it's rock solid. Is that relationship, Chris, as you look back on the last almost 30 years here, is that what's kept you at Pat's Peak? I have to imagine that You've had other opportunities. There's a lot of ski areas in New England. It's not that easy to run a good operation. When you find someone who can do it, that's a pretty valuable asset in the marketplace. What has kept you at Pat's Peak all these years? Ah, that's a great question. Uh, (laughs) um, It's basically the autonomy that the family gives us up here, gives our team up here. And, uh, you know, there's just a, a degree of comfort knowing that they are backstopping the facility. They are not micromanagers. We can do everything. They set the goals of what we need to do, and they tell us the ground rules. And we pretty much have incredible latitude to execute on that business plan. And I guess at the end of the day, I just enjoy the freedom. And um, the tenure of our senior team is is awesome. Uh, we're getting ready to 
replace one of our uh, directors here shortly because they're getting ready to retire, but they were here for 26 years. Mm. And then we had another director retire two years ago on our senior team, and she was here for 40 years. Wow. Uh, so there's a lot of longevity. You know, for, for a long time, I was referred to as the new guy on the team. <laughs> and uh, we just have longevity in our staff. The ownership is fantastic in taking care of our staff and our year-round staff. It's just, uh, you know, I, I see a lot of radical change in the industry sometimes when these new ownership groups take over. And the old saying about a new broom sweeps clean, um, it's true. So I've just really enjoyed, uh, I've certainly had offers over the years, but uh, at the end of the day, I just, I love the place and I love working for the family. They're great. I'm curious, Chris, how much your prior experience that you alluded to, how much that influenced this decision to stay at Pat's Peak through all these years. You, I mentioned in the introduction, you spent five years at Magic Mountain and Magic is, is in really good shape right now. It's going through a little renaissance under Jeff Hathaway, who put together a new ownership team in 2016. has been doing a great job at rebuilding that place reputation, but it was not always the case. Magic Mountain was closed for half the 90s. It used to be a bigger ski area when you had the timber side. And, and I believe that when you worked there in the late 80s, early 90s, that that timber side operation, that it was actually an abandoned ski area that was connected to Magic, was in play. Take us back to your time at Magic. What was it like working in that ski area 30-some years ago? And what were the challenges that it faced that, that you kind of learned from and brought with you to Pat's Peak? Wow, that's a that's a that's a first question. It's kind of like your first high school love. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I was uh, I was going to school in the uh, '80s up at Linden State College, and uh, a guy by the name of Jim Schultz uh, was the mountain manager at Magic Mountain at the time, and he had gone to Linden State for the ski area management program. So we were both in the same same degree program, but he probably graduated probably eight to ten years ahead of me. And uh, he was looking for somebody to help him out with some of the summertime uh, construction projects. And uh, I remember uh, Kathy DeLeo, who was running the program at the time, set me up with an interview with Jim. And here was this kid from Long Island that didn't know anything about the ski business. And I tipped my hat to Jim because he took me under his wing and he taught me everything that he knew about the business. And he was... Uh, he was not afraid to put me on machinery that I'd never been onto, of course, with the proper training. But uh, it was a, uh, it was a, uh, it was an eye-opening experience for me. Uh, and Magic was certainly uh, going through a fantastic renaissance of its own. <clears throat> Peter Thorner or Hans Thorner, the original owner of Magic Mountain, and it was named after the book The Magic Mountains, uh, was. Uh, getting older in life. And, uh, I think he saw the competitive, uh, landscape of the marketplace. You know, at the time, Okemo and Stratton were just spending millions of dollars re renovating their facilities. And I don't think he could keep up. So a new ownership group took over and I think it was 1985. And that was, that coincided with my first year. And they just, they, uh, they turbocharged capital expenditure. You know, we ramped up snowmaking. Uh, we used to run eight headcos. Uh, and if you've ever run a Headco snow machine, when the thing is on, it's on and it's making snow, but keeping it on, <laughs> <laughs> that was a different thing. So we had to, uh, 
we had to kind of modernize the snowmaking plant. And so for the first three or four years there, uh, we must have laid 150 to 200,000 feet of snowmaking pipe wow. between Magic Mountain and Timber Ridge, which got combined to form the Magic Mountains. We cut and blasted the cross trails. And, uh, you know, we built uh, one new ski lift. We rehabilitated another lift at the time. Um, and it was just a really fun time in my life. Uh, I fell in love with that job and I was crestfallen when the, the, the markets collapsed in 1991. It was a poor ski season and, uh, they did a round of layoffs. You know, we used to have like 20 to 25 employees and they cut it down to 15 employees and then it was down to 10. And then, uh, in August we got word that the, the money train had run out and the five guys, which included myself, Jim Schultz, uh, Patrick O'Connor, and a couple others. Um, that was it. That's all she wrote. And, uh, I was, uh, I was really bummed because I had such a fantastic time and it was a, it was such a dynamic time for magic mountain. I will always have a soft spot in my heart and, uh, Jeff and his crew are doing a great job of bringing her back after many ownership stints where she, she just wasn't capitalized enough. You know, magic's challenge has always been that it never really had beginner terrain. Um, and it's a steep, it's a steep hill. Uh, but it's a great hill to ski. So I, I tip my hat to Jeff and those guys in, in getting that operation back up and running. And uh, like I said, I'll always have a soft spot in my heart for it. You ever get a chance to go over there and make a few turns? I've hiked it a few times. Uh, them not operating some days during the midweek is a little problematic uh, yeah. because, you know, I'm, I'm over here on the weekends. Um, and uh, Southern Vermont is really – it's not so much in my orbit anymore. I'm more Northern Vermont focused. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's talk about Pat's Peak here. Uh, let's start with your lift fleet here, Chris. You have a, a really big lift fleet, four triples, two doubles. It's in good shape. Uh, Valley, you know, have some older ones. Valley dates to the 60s. Looking around the mountain, what's your wish list long term for upgrades for the lift fleet at Pat's Peak? Yeah, so we're pretty happy with our lift fleet the way it is right now. We've got a talented group of lift mechanics that keep those machines running, and um, they're they're absolutely fantastic crew uh, in terms of keeping the keeping the iron stuff going. We've installed a, a number of lifts over the last couple of decades. Uh, we like to buy used equipment and. Um, what we do is we try and identify a lift that was truly grandma drove it on Sundays. And uh, we've had pretty good luck. Our vortex chair came out of Norwich University, and that was on a ski area that faced south. That had, And that lift had less than 3,000 hours on it when we took it down. Uh, we totally rehabilitated the safety circuits and the electronics and, and all the electrical switch gear and what I call the, the important parts of the lift uh, went through the gearbox. And then we uh, installed the Turbulence Triple, and that came out of Waterville Valley. We installed uh, the Cascade Basin Chair. That came out of Osler Bluff in Ontario. That had less than 4,000 hours on it. That was brand new in 86, and then they put in a detachable right next to it in 89. And then uh, this last one was uh, the last chair we installed is uh, came from Mount Escutney. We handled the liquidation of the lift and snowmaking fleet. Uh, snowmaking equipment rather, 
uh, and that was probably an 11 or 12. I, the, the, the exact year escapes me. Maybe it was even 13. And uh, so we took all the snowmaking assets, all the lifts out of there. We kept the summit triple. We took down the additional two other triples and we flipped them and uh, we sold them off to other areas. And then um, so that was what was left at a Scutney at the time. And um, Crotchet Mountain had taken the detachable out. But we weren't necessarily interested in the detachable because the, both the price that they wanted and, and just getting that piece of equipment out would have been a real uh, a real cost killer. Circling back to which lifts we'd want to replace, uh, probably the Hurricane is first, which is a 77 Borvig triple. Uh, she's in good shape, but um, she's got some hours and we're, we're looking to do a little capacity upgrade and then probably the Valley Chair. Uh, we took down a fixed grip quad probably three or four years ago, maybe five years ago now, now that I think about it. And uh, that is sitting in our yard right now, and we're getting we're working with SkyTrack services uh, on some engineering options to make sure that we use uh, all the equipment to the best of our abilities. And, and again, that was another lift. I think that thing had less than 2,000 hours on it, and it was a 96 SeaTech quad. So it was plenty long for us, plenty of towers, plenty of chairs. Uh, we're going to reuse the drive terminal and all other aspects of the lift. And uh, that's probably going to go where the hurricane footprint is now, just to get a little more capacity out of that side of the hill. Well, that's interesting. So that quad was actually sitting on Pat's Peak? It is sitting in our yard right now. No, I'm sorry. Uh, it was It was running on Pat's Peak in a different location? No, no, I'm sorry. It, we took it down from the Lake Compounds Amusement Park in Connecticut. Oh, cool. Uh, so that was a difficult takeout. We actually, we had, to, we had to wait almost a year to take that lift out fully because Hurricane Maria had come through and we were, we were going to use a helicopter okay. to remove the towers. And well, the federal government requisitioned all the helicopters in the area. So our lift towers stood there for an additional eight months while we waited wow. uh, for Puerto Rico to be put back on our feet. So then we went back in the spring and we, we took the balance of the lift out. Okay. So, so that quad you envision going and replacing Hurricane, will that run along the same line, same, same load spot and same terminal? Or, or do you want to shift that a little bit? No, I think we're going to use the same footprint, but I think we want to lower the base terminal. Uh, we're still surveying some work. Right now in our beginner area, we kind of have a, a, a little ski-through path that we want to address. So what we want to do is uh, reconfigure our base area so that the skiers, the advanced skiers, are not skiing right through the middle of the beginner area, yeah. which you, you can obviously tell is problematic. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's... That's probably a couple years out. When you move that uh, peak triple chair over from Mount Escutney, you put a carpet load on. Do you envision putting a carpet load on the new Hurricane chair as well? Yes, we do. We've been very happy with it. The The nickname around here is it's our poor man's detachable. It allows <laughs> us to run a little bit higher line speed on our triple uh, than we would normally do it. Uh, I think uh, the peak chair with the loading carpet runs about 25% faster than a hurricane triple. And uh, we will be installing another carpet. We're big fans of it. There's a little bit of a learning curve. Ironically, uh, we found that uh, advanced skiers had more of a 
difficulty adapting to it than the beginners because uh, the the experts have so much muscle memory in how to ride a chairlift, and you don't want to overthink a carpet loader. Uh, you just want to let it do its thing, and so that's that was what what our experience was. And we started it out slow, and then as our you know we we'd crank it up five feet you know, every couple of days and until we got to what we would call our sweet spot. And uh, so now it's a, it's a pretty short ride. So do you think that's where you're going to live in the future is the carpet loads rather than looking to upgrade to a detached because you don't have to worry about the grips and all this other expensive maintenance. We've seen uh, Berkshire East, which operates a lot like you do, Family Place, you know, no debt. They went with a, a carpet load for their summit and they have a little more vert than you do. Is, are, are you pretty happy with that as, as sort of philosophical way to guide your lift fleet development into the future? Yes. You know, we, when you get, you know, the ski business is an incredibly capital intensive business. Mm -hmm. And when you make an investment, you have to figure out if you're going to get a return on your investment. So we went about, when we were feeling a little bit of pressure in the early 2000s, you know, we were approaching the end of life for one of our other lifts. And we said, what are we going to do? Are we going to install a detach and take the plunge? Or are we going to stick with our philosophy of doing uh, previously experienced lifts and re re rehabilitating them? And so I I'm a spreadsheet guy. And I, I do, a lot of, do a lot of my figuring and thinking on a spreadsheet. And what we had done is we tried to identify ski areas in New England and figure out who had installed a detachable, the length of that detachable, and then what did it do for their attendance. And we found an alarming trend with the number of installs on the detachable side of things. We found... I'm, you're catching me a little bit cold with this one, but I think it was we found six ski areas that had installed detachables where there was no appreciable increase in attendance and actually caused them financial pain because of the maintenance and probably because of the note they needed to now digest in terms of installing this detachable. And a few come to mind uh, that install those a scutney being one of them it did nothing for their attendance i try to remember some of the other ones um you know ragged mountain initially when it was owned by uh, another family they installed a detachable and uh in my opinion um and opinions are like you know what but they never had the snowmaking firepower that was required for Southern New Hampshire. So they had this beautiful brand new six pack to the top of the mountain, but they weren't able to open because they, they could, it was one of those winters that I was alluding to earlier where mother nature was a little stingy with the cold air and they could not get the, tra the trails open off of that detachable. And then lo and behold, the banker came around and said, Oh, by the way, you know, where's my payment? And uh, there's a few other ones, too. I'm not sure that, uh, you know, I think if, if anybody does their homework, they can probably see, you know, Pico comes to mind. I'm not sure that they saw the increased attendance from installing those, and, and then that forced an ownership change. Uh, and then there's a handful of other ones out there. You know, what we found is that the magic length of a detach 
according to our data, was about 4,200 feet. If you were for, over 4,200 feet, it made sense to do a detachable and you could kind of justify it. If it was under 4,200 feet and our lifts are 3,000 feet, um, you know, to go from a seven minute ride, which if our lifts stay running and don't shut off is what our lift ride is, to a four and a half minute ride, I'm not sure that that is going to motivate a skier, let's say if they're in Manchester, New Hampshire, to make make the trip to Pat's Peak. So that's where we just kind of stayed in our lane, getting back to what you said, knowing who you are as a marketplace. And just, you know, if you're a skier in Manchester, New Hampshire, are you going to ski Pat's Peak because it has a detachable? I don't know that I could make that argument. I'm sure somebody could. I'm not sure that I could translate it into additional ticket sales. And I have a little bit of data to say that it didn't translate into ticket sales. Um, you know, forever in a day, I heard during the 90s that we needed a half pipe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was, again, one of those investments that was a substantial substantial cash outlay, as well as maintenance and operating in the whole nine yards. And we were going to go out of business if we didn't install a half pipe. And I was kind of our team was a little bit hesitant to do that just because of the commitments that would be required to operate that thing and then again we asked that we asked the question you know was if if i'm choosing to go to pat's peak over somebody else am i really going just because they have a half pipe and so the same argument was extended to detachables and uh that's kind of why we, we just we just think we know who we are we're pretty comfortable and um you know, we've been profitable operating without a detachable for every year. So, and without a half pipe, right? You never built without, it without a detachable <laughs> and without a half pipe. <laughs> so, it sounds like you're putting a lot of thought into your lift fleet and doing this very deliberately. As you look across the mountain at Valley, which we discussed briefly earlier, that lift dates to 1969. What are your thoughts eventually for replacing Valley? And just curious why you haven't yet. Is it because it has the redundant lift running right alongside it with turbulence. What, what, what's your thinking around Valley? Yep. So the Valley chair is a Mueller. Um, and <clears throat> that drive terminal actually came out of Sugarbush. Wow. Um, we bought that back in the 80s and we swapped out the drive terminal. So it's an incredibly large drive. Um, it's a gearbox that really doesn't even get warm. Um so we, you know, when we buy these these previously experienced lifts that Grandma drove on Sundays, you know, we're generally taking five and six thousand foot lifts and cutting them down to two thousand feet or three thousand feet. So the 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 overkill, if you will, of the drive stations is incredible. Mueller, um, the '69 Valley chair that you're talking about, uh, you know, they just made a it's a bomb proof lift. It's kind of like a hall. It's a, you, it's, it's just a, it's a engineering marvel. It's in really good shape, but we also understand that we need to get a little more capacity out of it. You know, we put the triple in next to it in 2003 and that started absorbing most of the hours, the old Valley chair, when it was just the Valley over there, uh, that chair was racking up about, I think it was about 1500 hours a year and now it has been reduced to uh kind of an uh, an overflow lift if you will and runs less than 400 hours a year oh wow so we 
we're, we've bought time for it by installing the other chair. And I think, you know, we're coming up on the 20 year mark when we installed the turbulence triple, which is parallel to it. So it's now time to start thinking about replacing the valley chair to quote unquote, save the turbulence chair and get more hours out of that. So if we install, it would be a fixed grip quad over there um, or a triple, depending on what we find in the marketplace. And um, we would, uh, you know, hopefully buy another 20 years for the, for the turbulence chair and just, and we kind of do that. And that's the same story with the hurricane is, you know, the peak chair is great chair, but maybe first thing out of the gate will be our new fixed grip quad over by the hurricane and, and just buy additional time for some of these other pieces of equipment. You know, it's interesting you're mentioning the Mueller and the halls, and I'm looking at your lift fleet right now. You have three halls, a Borvig, a SeaTech, a Partech, and a Mueller. Uh, you know, understanding that you save a lot of money by going out in the marketplace and buying these used lifts, how much of a headache does it cost you to have one, two, three, four, five different lift manufacturers, some of them that are no longer in business, that you have to keep up with and find parts for? You know, it's not as bad as people think. Okay. Um, like I said, we buy these lifts that are really long. Mm-hmm. And so we have so many spare parts for all mm-hmm. of our lifts. Okay. Um, probably the most complex part of it is the gearbox. Mm-hmm. But we're very thorough in that. We go through our gearboxes on a regular basis. We com- do complete teardowns. Um we go completely through them. We, we, we use a contractor that comes in here and, and he does a fantastic job of making sure that those things are race ready to go. And, uh, so, you know, like the turbulence chair, I mean, we probably have another eight to 10 towers another 50 mm-hmm. chairs in our yard. Uh, the, the, the Escutney triple that became our peak chair, same thing. We cut it down from a 4,500 foot lift to, a to a, a 3000 foot lift. So we got plenty of chairs, plenty of grips. And, you know, we, we buy a lot of equipment that matches our stuff when we see it come on the marketplace and we just store it. So as you look around the mountain, you have a lot of lifts. They're all focused other than Cascade Basin in that heart of the resort area. Have you ever wanted a lift on the east side or is there anywhere where you want a redundant lift? Any Anywhere you're missing a lift on the mountain or you'd like to put one to take some pressure off that central area of the resort you know we talked a long time ago between duster and east wind of installing a, a small little chairlift in there but we just i don't think it would get the usage to justify the the installation of a of a separate lift our void and, and what backed that up a little bit is our race chair the vortex chair which is my favorite chair on the mountain um you know, that comes down to the mountain three quarters of the way, but you will literally have 15, 20 minute lift lines sometimes on our two summit chairs and it's ski on the vortex chair. Um, and you, you're, you're just, you, you're literally riding the peak chair and you can look and see the vortex chair is, is ski on. And yet you still ski all the way down to our base area. <laughs> and choose to wait in another lift line when you're really only losing like six, 700 feet of ski slope. And if you just jumped on that lift and that's, that's kind of what steered us a little bit away from the duster and East, East wind chair. We were like, mm, you know, we're having trouble getting people to ride the vortex chair. Uh, so let's, you know, let's, let's put that on ice. 
it's the same thing at Sunday River where they have Locke and Barker sitting next to each other and there's never a line at Locke and Barker always has the longest line at the resort and you can ski right onto Locke and it doesn't access the exact same terrain, but it's similar type of terrain. And I can never figure out that site. There's an interesting psychology there that I don't, I don't know if anyone's looked at necessarily about why people just need that extra little bit of vertical. Well, it's also that, and I also call it the detached philosophy, right? You know, if, if let's say if Pat's peak was to install a detachable on our summit, triple lift line, that's probably would be the, the, uh, the, the lift line that we would follow. I am pretty convinced it would render every other fixed grip chairlift here at our hill um, empty. Right. Because everybody would be drawn to that detachable. And I see it all the time when I ski around. Uh, I will see people wait 15 minutes in a detachable line and the fixed grip chair that may go to the same exact place <laughs> will be empty. Yep. Yep. Uh, now, trust me, as a skier, I do appreciate detachables and, you know, and I understand at a certain at a certain length and distance and all that, you know, you really do need a detachable. But for what Pat's Peak is as a as a as a learn to facility, I think we're in good shape. Yeah, it, it's that phenomenon is observable all over the place at Shawnee, Pennsylvania. A couple seasons ago, they have a detach and they have a double right next to it. And there was a big line all day for the detach, but I was lapping that double. And I, I would just, I always say, I'll take a no line and a slow lift over a long line and a fast lift any day. Cause I just want to be moving. Yeah. Uh, but I, but I, I think you're right. You're in order to get the most out of all your lifts, it's good to have them all going. Um, I do want to shift over and talk here about snowmaking. Really amazing. The snowmaking plant you've built up. I went up there, I guess it was early January last year and everyone else was kind of struggling and, and, and taking their time getting open and we had really marginal weather. And granted, you have a smaller footprint, but your whole mountain was open. I think every single trail outside of the glades, including Cascade Basin, how do you do it? Just talk about your snowmaking philosophy and how you've been able to position Pat's Peak in such a dynamic way that you can outcompete these places with, frankly, much better capitalization. And, and you know, you would suppose more of an ability to just blow the snow away, but how, how did you build that thing up and how are you able to David these Goliaths year after year? Well, <laughs> we joke, uh, you know, that we're a snowmaking system with a ski area attached. <laughs> um, and that's kind of, and, and I can tell you on our senior team meetings, when we debate capital money uh, in the spring, everybody's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know snowmaking is going to get 50% of every dollar. And uh, it's uh you know, and maybe the kitchen will get a new fry later or a new refrigerator, but snowmaking will get a brand new pump and brand new compressors or brand more or more fan guns and stuff like that. So we, we joke about that here at the ski area, but really uh, it's, it's an operational philosophy that if you don't have the snow, it, everything else just really doesn't matter. And we understand that, you know, we're only trying to cover 120 acres of ski trail, but, um, we can pump a lot of water and, um, you know, we can move upwards of 5,000 gallons a minute when our system is running full bore. We've been working off a master plan since 1999 that Snowmatic out of uh, Lyme, New Hampshire put together. A big shout out to Matt Purcell and Scott Barthold. And they calculated how much cold air we had before uh, Christmas week. You know, that is your that is your crucial period where you want as much of your terrain as possible 
and they calculated it out and they gave us again i'm making up some numbers here but they said you got 250 hours where it's below 26 degrees well if you're designing a snowmaking system it's all mathematics after that if you know how many hours of cold air that you traditionally have and you've got to cover x amount of acres and you need x amount of gallons of water it just becomes a function of how much water you can pump and how what do you have for equipment on the hill and all that stuff so we are been consistently every year cutting the amount of hours it takes us to get our hill open you know the the snowmaking philosophy was in the 60s it was kind of a novelty and there were a bunch of uh i would call mad scientists out there trying to figure out how to make snow then in the 70s it was probably you know is you probably wanted at least a couple three trails maybe 25 percent of your terrain was under snowmaking uh, along came the 80s and the 90s with uh, ASC and stuff like that. And then it became an arms race as to who could get, you know, I think most ski areas by then, your healthy ski areas, uh, were probably having about 80% coverage to, if not even 100% coverage. And I think everybody, uh, it became an arms race as to who could get it open the fastest. And that's when we embarked on this master plan. And, uh, you know, it takes us a, a couple 300 hours now to get all of our terrain open. But every single thing that we are doing for the next, for the last 20 years and the next few years has been trying to implement that master plan so that we can go from nothing being open to all of our terrain being open in 48 hours. And that is, that is our operating philosophy we make snow whenever we can. Uh, as soon as they read the electric meter, uh, first week of November, we fire up our snowmaking system because we know that when we wake up four plus megawatts of uh, pumps, compressors, fan guns, and all that stuff, you're going to have issues. And so what we try and do is uh, we come up with our, our honeydew list once we start making snow. And then, you know, snowmaking is pretty sporadic in November, but we want to make sure that the physical plant has been 100% repaired and ready to go. And there's just some of those things you're not going to find out until you turn them on. And uh, so then we just go, we just go, 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 go. And then uh, we don't let up until our, at least 85% of our terrain is open for Christmas week. Uh, that, that's the truth. Even when I was skiing, I was getting a nice snow shower on the lift and it was blowing everywhere. And you had the guys out there, so, it, you know, you're killing it and you've applied that philosophy even as you've expanded, Chris. When you opened the Cascade Basin expansion about a decade ago now, I guess, uh, you, you made sure that that had snowmaking from day one. Just let's talk about that expansion for a minute. How happy are you with that? How much did that change the experience of being there and just helping folks spread out a little bit? Well, it's good because, you know, it, it really worked out well for us in terms of, uh, you know, you take your, your bell curve of your visitation. And when visitation starts peaking around 10, 30, 11 o'clock in the morning, you know, you're starting to load every single chair on the front side. A lot of people will migrate over to Cascade Basin and ride out the, the high points, if you will, on that side of the mountain. I think uh, one of our season pass holders summed it up best. They said, uh, you know, Pat's Peak proper is the main meal. Uh, Cascade Basin is the appetizer. And uh, it just allowed us to move a whole lot more people around the hill, and um, it gives them some more terrain. It's a real fun area back there. Um, 
it's one of my favorite areas. It's got some nice glades. Uh, it faces uh, east, gets a little morning sun, so it's a it's really a nice part of the part of the hill, and it really helps alleviate some of the some of the uh, capacity issues on the front side. As you look ahead, do you have additional expansion opportunities? I don't know what your what the land footprint looks like around you as far as whether the family owns that land or if you would have to acquire it. But are there other expansion opportunities off of either of the peaks or adjacent to any of those peaks you have now? There are opportunities. Uh, we do own a, a fair amount of the land around us. I think what we want to do, though, before we embark on that is we want to make sure that our existing asset, whether it's snowmaking or lift infrastructure or anything like that, or even base area infrastructure, is in top-notch shape. Uh, and it is uh, operating as efficiently as possible because the last thing you want to do is um, is start expanding your footprint before you make sure that your main house is in order. So there are, there are some opportunities. Uh, there are some ideas that uh, we're probably not ready to share yet. Um, but, um, you know, we never say never up here. How about within your existing footprint? You've done a really nice job of thinning out an expansive glade network over the years. Could you expand that system further, maybe between hurricane and tornado, between tornado and cyclone, or even getting down the mountain between lower tornado and blast for some of that beginner novice glade experience? Are there other places on the mountain that you could glade out or, or in fact, even cut another trail? Yes and yes. Uh, so your, your question's two-part there. I, I love creating glades because I, I, they absorb a lot of folks. And what we try and do when we, when we do make a glade trail here is because we are in southern New Hampshire – we generally try and clear the trees opposite side of where the snowmaking guns are so that at least the drift, if you will, of the snow plume kind of fills in some of the areas. And I think you've seen some of the, if you skied up here last year, you might've seen that between Duster, uh, between Puff and uh, Whisper Ski Trail. Yep. Um, and uh, some of the stuff over in Cascade Basin, you know, when they blow the snow and if it's a windy day, some of that snow drifts into the woods. It, and we, we, we do a very good job of, of getting our trails down so that you can almost putt on them. So, and our glades are no different. They're very, they're very well cleaned out, sculpted down so that you could literally ski them on a couple, three inches of snow. And you, you know that uh, machine-made snow is a little more dense than natural snow, so it, 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 it does well. And we also make snow on our glades. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, we've got a number of them that we do uh, because they are just so popular and we do those on what I would call our boardwalk and park place glades. And the kids just love it. They just absolutely love being in there because who doesn't want to ski in the trees? That's so cool. Love that. And as you look around, are there any particular areas you have in mind for possible glading? Um, we're probably going to do a little bit more uh, glading out in Cascade Basin, but we're not ready to go there just yet. Mm -hmm. All right, let's talk Indie Pass here, Chris. You were an early adopter of the Indie Pass. You've been signed up since the inaugural year in 2019 to 20. What drew you to the pass when it was sort of just a pie in the sky thing that that was an idea that may or may not work out? Well, I'm a social guy, and Doug was standing there all alone in the trade show trying to <laughs> trying to sell this idea. So I had a cold beer, and I walked up to him, and I said, "What's this all about?" Mm -hmm. And uh, he told me about it. And I said I would think about it, and we shook hands on it shortly thereafter. Mm -hmm. And it really, uh, you know, 
we had Epic and Icon was going around, and you've got the consolidation in the business and creating different tiered products. So Doug really did a fantastic job of identifying a niche that needed filling. And, uh, you know, I, the only thing that I counseled him on is I said, this is going to take three years to, to get off the ground because, uh, anytime that we do any sort of new event here at the ski area, it takes three years for it to really get traction. Um, and you know, him and his team have really just blown it out of the water and, uh, we couldn't be happier. And we, we, have seen some huge days of redemption on the Indy pass. And, uh, I think, I think he's just really got a great idea going. So we, we fully support it. And I think this is going to be our third ski season coming up or maybe our fourth. I don't. Yeah. It's been a great combination. Pat's peak has finished last ski season, 2021 to 22 as the third most redeemed of Indies. Well, it'll be 97 partners going into this next year. It was more in the seventies last year, but does that surprise you? I mean, when you look at the Indy roster, you you have places like Tamarack, Idaho, and Powder Mountain in Utah, and Saddleback, and Cannon, and here's Pat's Peak, number three in the entire country in redemptions. Does that surprise you at all? Yes, <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, and I, I, you know, the only thing that I can chalk it up to is that you know the Northeast. New England area is a very robust skiing market. And I can't necessarily say that I know exactly what's going on in the Indy Pass holder mind, but I think what they're saying is, okay, we have this ticket to Pat's Peak. They're skiing 28 of 28 trails. It's a little bit before Christmas or it's right around Christmas week. Let's use our Pat's Peak ticket and let's wait for the bigger guys, your cannons, your J Peaks, your saddlebacks, and all that stuff, for their snowmaking systems to catch up and get more terrain online. I, I really kind of think that that's what's going on because if you look at the the um, redemption history, if you will, uh, Pat's Peak in the beginning of the ski season is always very front loaded, and then it tapers. Um, it tapers. You know, it's almost like an inverse relationship. If 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 Pat's Peak is if it's December 15th, Pat's Peak is doing a lot of redemptions. Jay Peak is probably doing next to nothing. And then by the end of the season, Jay Peak is doing a lot of redemptions. And we're, we've trickled down to very little. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right, Chris. And I suspect the same thing. Doug told me something really interesting a couple of years back. He, he anecdotally pointed to a survey that you did of Indy Pass holders and you found that some some ninety some percent of your redemptions were first time skiers to Pat's Peak. I mean, how valuable has that been as a marketing tool? Just because I I wasn't hearing people talk about Pat's Peak five years ago. Now everyone seems familiar with this little New Hampshire ski area. I mean, how good has this relationship been for you as a as a, a member of Indy Pass? Well, sure. You know, it, it's been a fantastic relationship, and I, I can't t- tip my hat enough to Doug and his team. Uh, and Doug is, you know, he's very responsive. Like if you have any sort of issues, you email or text him, he's, he's like right back to you. Yep. But I think what, what goes on there is when you, you always approach a new promotion with a little trepidation as a general manager, you have your existing sales channels, if you will, that are, are, are feeding your operation. 
And the last thing you want to do is introduce another sales channel that is going to sabotage an existing sales channel. And so one of the things that we set up our point of sale system to do was when we were redeeming these tickets is we said, you know, had you ever skied Pat's Peak before? Now, people, of course, can not tell you the truth or anything like that. But um, the quick story on that is that in our first year, 90% of our guests visiting our facility were like, never been here before. And when they come here in the wintertime, you know, the buildings are in good shape. The snow's in good shape. All the lifts are running. The skiing is excellent. They're pretty impressed. They, they, they kind of really enjoy it. So that's why we really like the Indy Pass. Conversely, you used to have a company like uh, Liftopia out there. And we did a deal once with uh, Liftopia. And we priced the ticket accordingly. And I, my office sits right behind skier services. And during the midweek, it's, you know, we, we move our lift ticket sales inside. And so I can hear the customer feedback. It's, it's always important, I think, for, for management to be in the, in the guest services area so that you hear what's going on. And I recall one transaction where these folks came in and they, they, they were redeeming their Liftopia tickets. And, uh, you know, our rack rate was, I forget what it was at the time. I'll, I'll make up a number. It was like $70. And these, these guys were coming in here at $55 on a Liftopia ticket. And then our net to us was probably $48, uh, something like that. And uh, I said, oh, you know, hey, I see that you folks are using your Liftopia tickets. And, and I said, uh, um, what, did you, what did you think of this? Oh, the, what, you know, the lady goes, oh, the website was great, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, have you ever skied Pat's Peak before? And they said, oh, yeah, we ski it all the time, but we Googled cheap lift tickets just before we came. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, <clears throat> and uh, so when the lady walks out the door, the head of our skier services, Gina, looks at me and she goes, that was your worst nightmare right there, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and it was what we would always fear with some of these third-party ticket sellers is that they were they were sabotaging existing sales for us. Now, if you were like IndyPass and you were bringing us truly 90% new customers, that's that's a win-win. So that's kind of what we were that's that's our that's our story with Doug. But the initially it was Doug was lonely at the trade show, so I went up to him and I started. <laughs> Well, the relationship is evolving. You did not have blackouts the first three seasons with IndyPass. Going into next season, you will have 16 blackout days around the Christmas MLK and President's Day holidays. You had to introduce a reservation system mid-season last season. Talk about that whole dynamic and how your IndyPass volume is uh, evolving and how you've had to adapt to that. Yeah, so we were literally getting love to death. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were getting tremendous amount of redemptions and i and i will tell you exactly why we went back to a reservation system uh we had gotten through last ski season so we had a reservation system the entire ski season of 2021 or 21 2021 we had an entire reservation system to get through covid okay 21 22 comes along we're like okay things are you know i'm using air quotes here returning back to normal here let's lift the reservation system and 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 do that so we start selling tickets we get the ski area open there's not a whole lot of natural snow on the ground and we have a fantastic christmas week you know to your point we were skiing 26 of 28 trails we were in good shape snow was fine weather was beautiful 
place was doing a nice stroke of business for Christmas week. We were good. The following weekend, which is historically, believe it or not, a slow weekend because kind of everybody has done their holiday thing. And so they're, they're, you know, the bills are coming in and they're catching up a little bit. Boston got, I think it was four or five inches of snow. Uh Oh, and so we were like, all right, you know, whatever, we're going to we'll probably see a little bit of uptick in business. And I had worked the night shift the night before, so I didn't get out of here till like 1130 or 12 o'clock that night. And I was coming in in the morning at 745 and the traffic on Route 114 was backed up a half a mile each way. And I was like, oh, my God, what is going on here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so I immediately turned the car around and I went through the back way to get up to the ski area. That's not necessarily a published way on, on how you get here. And I'm like, what is going on? I said, have we had a car accident on our access road or anything like that? And our parking crew, uh, Dave and his guys were running around trying to park the cars as fast as they could. Uh, and we just literally, we could not handle the volume. We had filled up our parking lots by 9.45 a.m. I was on the phone with the police chief of the local town here saying, I, I said, chief, I am trying to get these cars parked as fast as possible. And I am trying to clear this road as fast as we can. And, uh, you know, at, at, at 9.45, 10.15 we just, we were, you know, we made the call at like 945 to just say we we're only going to park season pass holders from here on out. And at 1015, we had to, we had to tell our season pass holders that they could, they could not come. Wow. We put it out on social media. We, we advertised it on our website and we put it all out. We were just like, we were completely full and that was unacceptable to me. I had angry customers uh, that were just you know, I bought a season pass, you know, I'm never coming back to your place. So we took, we did a lot of handholding. We, 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 we assured everybody that we were, we were meeting to try and figure out what to do. Our team got together and we just immediately went back to a reservation system and uh, we instituted restrictions on all ticketing channels. And um, because Pat's Peak does not like to oversell its facilities because when you're operating the ski area in the red zone, if you will, um, you're not providing the good service for anybody. If your food line is 30 minutes long, if your lift lines are 30 minutes long, if your rental shop is an hour long, who is having a good experience there? Nobody. Your staff is not having a good experience combined, you know, and, and then not to mention that staffing was a huge challenge last year, that it was just, oh my God, it was... Uh, <laughs> So we went back to a reservation system. We cruised through the rest of the ski season in uh, very good shape. And uh, we're on the fence as to what we have to do this year. We thought that that adjustment on the Indy Pass, to get back to your original question, was uh, was an important thing to do so we don't get loved to death. So we are coming off a record ski season in the United States, according to the National Ski Area Association. And that really did hit home in New Hampshire. We saw a lot of these sort of volume concerns, uh, not enough labor, not enough terrain open, not enough lifts running. And I want to wrap up today here, Chris, by talking about this changing landscape that you've been living through up in New Hampshire for the past several years, starting with just going back to 2018, when Vail first came into New Hampshire and they bought Mount Sunapee. And then the next year, they bought all of Peak Resorts. So suddenly, 
you went from Novale in the Northeast to Vale owning four of your competitors, right? Two of them direct competitors in Crouchit and, and Mount Sunapee. And then they also had Wildcat and Aditash. So they come in, they introduce a Northeast value pass at, you know, $514 for the whole season that's unlimited, all those mountains. Your season pass, meanwhile, debuts at 469. So you're now tasked with, okay, people can either buy a pass at my one little mountain or they can get four mountains plus all this other stuff. Let's just go back to that moment in time. And and, and I know that memory is imperfect, but what what was your reaction when Vale came into the Northeast in force and introduced this, this cheap season pass? So what was your reaction and, and how has that synced up with the reality we've seen over these past four years? Yeah. So, I mean, anytime you have a new owner come into town, if you will, and buy up two of your closest ski area competitors, you're always kind of like, ah, all right, what's going on here? Right. Um, but, you know, I've been doing this a while now, and uh, and the owner has certainly owned the facility for a long time. I mean, as, as, as long as I've been here, he's owned it for the entire 60 years that he's been here. And, you know, we talked, we figured out what they were going to be doing, and, you know, the owner and I, we were just like, you know what? We're going to just stay in our lane. We're going to do our thing. We're not going to do anything radical. And, uh, you know, when uh, Peak Resorts came into town in 03, Pat's Peak was going to go out of business. Uh, they were going to refurbish Crotchet, and they were going to crush us. Our revenues went up. When Sunupy was taken over by Okemo, that was going to put us out of business. You know, this was kind of the word on the street. It was going to, it was going to crush us, put us out of business. Our revenues went up. The thing about Vale is it's the same thing. They have come into town. Everybody predicted doom and gloom for us. And our revenues are just, they just keep going up. And uh, it's, I really fundamentally tell our team all the time. I says, don't worry about what, they're doing worry about what we're doing worry about how we are servicing the guest it is our guest to lose they won't steal them if we do our job they will come back Mm -hmm. and you know these past products have been out there in the marketplace for since like you like you mentioned 2018 yet every year our season passes go up Mm. so i think you know, every ski area is unique. It's not like you're comparing a commodity. You're, com- you're, you're comparing, it's not like you're going to Best Buy or um, Crutchfield and buying a TV. You know, you, you say you got a Samsung TV. I'm looking at a 60-inch TV. Here's my price at Best Buy. Here's my price at Crutchfield. That's not how skiing works. Skiing is an experience. It, and an experience is something that you can't necessarily put your fingers on and touch. And... We tell our staff all the time, we kill them with customer service. We staff higher than most ski areas would staff. Um, You know, a a funny little tangent to that is that um, I had a ski area operator came here and he skied around and he he was like, oh my God, your facilities are immaculate. It's beautiful. Like, how do you, how do you do all this? And I said, well, you know, we've got probably six to eight people on any given day, um, cleaning our bathrooms and, and, uh, you know, cleaning and mopping the floors and the lodge and the whole nine yards. And he looked at me, this was just like, you have six to eight people doing that all day. 
<laughs> I was like, well, yeah. Have you ever seen a ski area bathroom that doesn't look like a bomb went off on it after you have, have let the public use it for the last half hour or 45 minutes? They just couldn't believe that we had staffed at that level to make sure that the facility was clean. And, and, and that just extends to every department. You know, you walk into our rental shop, you're going to get a lot of, you're, you're going to see a lot of staff because we're customer service oriented and you are, uh, you know, for us to staff that extra person when they're buying a hundred dollar product, it's, it's, it's kind of inconsequential to the grand picture of what you're trying to do. So you'll always see incredible staffing here to, answer your question though about the past products and you know how do we compete with it we just we we just compete on service service and experience is what sets Pat's Peak apart and it has from from day one and that's that's how we do it so we you know Vale is going to do its thing Pacific Group is going to do its thing Gunstock is going to do its thing but we're going to stay in our lane we're going to know exactly who our guests are and our skiers and um, I, I think it'll it'll be dramatic you know this is going to be the next ski season coming up 22, 23 uh, and our season pass sales are up again. Wow. So I am curious, Chris, your reaction to Vail raising its minimum wage to $20 an hour. I don't know if you draw from exactly the same labor pools. I'm not familiar enough with um, the way the towns are laid out up there, but is that concerning to you? Have you had a, a tough time dealing with that? Are you worried at all about recruiting for the winter when Crotchet is setting a $20 minimum wage for lifties and, uh, you know, food service people and all the other jobs at the resort? Um, you know, we pay attention to it, obviously, but uh, we compete more with Concord, New Hampshire and, and what's going on over there in terms of like fast food restaurants and retail positions over there. Uh, so we have adjusted our wages upward. At the end of the day, though, you know, would you rather work at an Abercrombie and Fitch or would you rather be at a ski area? And I still think while, they're, you know, while the ski bum may be perhaps sunsetting a little bit the camaraderie that you have when you work up at a place like pat's peak is is fantastic and uh, you know we've boosted a lot of uh what i would call our soft benefits if you will we've uh, you know we've we've widened the who can come skiing on a past day we've uh we've increased our benefits uh in terms of food discounts uh we're a little more generous with some other things there that may not be direct dollar for dollar compensation but uh, we think we're in fine shape. Uh, we've got an amazing team that comes back here every year. Our ski school is, is phenomenal with the amount of guys and gals that come back every single year to, to teach the little guys, little guys how to ski. So I think we're going to be okay. Um, that's kind of where we're at right now. All right, Chris. Well, with that, I will let you get back to prepping for the winter season. I cannot thank you enough for your time today, particularly as you – as you rebuild this thing like you do every year, I'm really looking forward to getting up there, making some turns. Hopefully you can get out and take a few runs with me. So thank you very much for this. It's really, really awesome to hear the story of how the Indies that were supposed to be meeting their doom are thriving in the era of the Mega Pass. And I think no one's doing it better than Pat's Peak. So best of luck with continued momentum up there. Stuart, thank you very much. And if you're ever in this neck of the woods, uh, please do knock on the door. I'll be more than happy to take a few runs with you. Count on it. Thank you, Chris. That's Chris Blomback, General Manager of Pat's Peak, New Hampshire. Chris, that was just tremendous. 
Thank you so much for all that. And you can bet you are going to be seeing me at the Mighty Pat's Peak this winter. Okay. The podcast train is back running at full speed. I know. I promise you Colorado Sun reporter Jason Blevins next. And that one is already recorded, but I am dealing with some tricky audio and you need to give me a beat on that one. We also had a little shuffling going on with the dates, but here's what should be directly ahead in this order. The leaders of Brundage, Nubs Knob, Sun Valley, Winter Park, Bromley, Monarch, Sundance, Boyne Resorts, and Vale Mountain, and many more after that. I already have several podcasts booked for early 2023, including Mount Spokane, Whitefish, Eagle Crest, and just scheduled this week, Brett Cook, the general manager of Seven Springs, Laurel, and Hidden Valley, Pennsylvania. I always love talking PA skiing, and we're going to see how the dinosaur is settling in with its 6th, 7th, and 8th resorts in the state. All right, make sure you get those episodes the moment they are live by signing up for the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers receive podcasts three days before everyone else. They also receive thousands of extra words of content each month. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.